In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So, God willing, today we we've made it to the end of Second Corinthians, Second uh, Corinthians chapter thirteen, um, and for the last couple of chapters, we've been speaking a lot. Saint Paul has been speaking a lot about um, his apostleship, about defending his apostleship, about um, trying to show that he is a genuine apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that the Corinthians would accept him and they would accept his preaching which is for their good and for their salvation. So um, he had spoken uh, in the last chapter, one of the most famous um, kind of passages, um, which, which where St. Paul was speaking about the vision of paradise that he saw uh, and how God had given him this vision. And then at the same time, he gave him a thorn in the flesh, which is most of the church fathers believe it's some kind of uh, physical disease or ailment. Um, in order to humble him and to, to make him feel like he is always in the need of the strength of God and not that he can serve in his own strength. Um, and, and he was saying this to the people. He was, he was saying about himself that he is being boastful and foolish um, in revealing all of these things to them. But he was doing it out of necessity. He was doing it because the people needed to understand that he is a genuine apostle um, in, in, in contradiction to all the false teachers that were coming to the Corinthians and they were preaching against St. Paul and saying that St. Paul was actually not genuine and they were trying to kind of take his place essentially um, and teaching false doctrine um, to the people. So we had finished chapter 12 last time. Uh, chapter 13 is 14 verses. So, um, you know, it's not very long. Uh, this is, again, the last chapter. So he starts, uh, he says, this will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Okay. So um, he, the third time I'm coming to you, meaning he's, he's visit, right? So he's, he's intending to visit them um, for the third time. Who are, who are these two or three witnesses? Um, some people believe that the two witnesses uh, are referring to his previous two visits to Corinth, Right. So when it says by the mouth of two or three witnesses, th it's like by the visits, right? So his first two visits are like the, 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 the witnesses, quote-unquote. Um, the first visit was in the year 52 AD, and uh, the purpose was to establish the church, and he stayed there for a year and a half. And we read about this in Acts 18, verse 1. One of the nice things about the book of Acts is that you can kind of correlate the actions um, that are happening in, you know, that are being written about in the other epistles with what happened in the book of Acts. So you can kind of like find a connection um, and common ground between the two. So in Acts 18 verses, uh, verse uh, 1, he, uh, he's, he's there um, establishing the church. He's there for a year and a half. Um, and then he came to them again for a second visit in the year 55 AD um, for a brief time. Um, after that, he had to depart to go to Ephesus. And we read about that in 1 Corinthians 16. Um, and then finally, he intends to visit them a third time, and this visit took place in 57 AD. So the first visit was 52, second visit was 55, and the third visit, which as of writing this hadn't happened yet, um, was 57. That's one interpretation of, of when he is referring here to the mouth of two or three witnesses. Another interpretation um, is that some people believe that the apostle didn't visit Corinth until the writing of this epistle except one time, right? So they... They believe that he didn't already have two visits, but only one visit, right? Um, and other people believe that the two witnesses that he's speaking about here are the two people that he added, 
like his, their name, like in the greetings that he gives to the to the people um, in, in the two epistles, which would be um, in First Corinthians one, chapter one. There's uh, Sosthenes, and then in Second Corinthians one, chapter one, it's Timothy. So if you read in the first chapter, first verse, wherever Saint Paul gives a greeting. In the first epistle of Corinthians, he mentions Sosthenes. In the second uh, epistle, he mentions Timothy. So some people say that these two witnesses are actually referring to the, his like partners in the service, in the ministry, um, which are mentioned. Yes. Um, he's not mentioned in the, in the epistle. Right? So Silas went on uh, the first, no, which one? The first missionary journey. I believe was the first missionary journey um, with him. Yes, but th but he's not mentioned here in these in these epistles. Yeah. I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time, and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. Okay, so he's giving them like a warning, okay? He's saying that when he comes to visit them, he hopes to find that those who had previously lapsed and sinned to be in a state of repentance, right? Um, and, and that's one of his major concerns about deciding the, the timing of his visit. As we mentioned before, you know, his first epistle was very harsh and rebuking to the point where St. Paul even said, I was worried about the harshness of the tone of the message at the time. But later on, I did not regret it because I saw that it created a spirit of repentance in you and that you changed. OK, um, but but he was also had delayed his visit because he wanted to give them the opportunity to change their ways so that when he goes and visits in person, he is not kind of rehashing the same rebukes about the same problems in person again. He wanted his visit to them to be kind of like a comforting visit, a positive tone to the visit. So he didn't want to come and, and essentially rebuke them again. So he's, he's warning them ahead of time, right? He's saying um, when he comes, he hopes to find that all of these problems and these situations have been resolved. And he comes confirms um, that what he has written to them uh, by his epistle, in his epistle, he will implement when he comes, right? So when he's saying what... Um, uh, now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare, right? Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, right? So it's like uh, one, of the, one of the challenges against him was that the things that he would write in his epistles, they would have like a certain authority and tone. But when he would come in person, they would find him to be like weak and they would find him to be like not eloquent or they would find him to be kind of not what they were imagining him to be. Right. So he's also having to kind of defend hi himself in the sense that he's saying um, whatever whatever you know of me from a distance, like through my epistle, that I will also be mighty, not weak when I come, when I come in person. OK, um, we can see that in the life of um, St. Paul, that the the the. I guess you could say the, the, the core or the foundation of his preaching was not just his words, right? It wasn't just the things that he said, but it was the life that he lived, which is why in his defending his apostleship, he spoke at length about the sufferings that he suffered for the sake of the ministry and the service to prove his authentic love for the people that he was willing to serve them out of his own 
um, energy, out of his own time, out of his own, uh, like, like giving up everything that he had for the sake of the ministry. And uh, if you remember, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive uh, words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And this is a distinguishing factor between those who simply understand the facts and the information about something versus those who have actually lived it, right? There are people who, for instance, teach religion classes in universities and teach Christianity classes in universities who are atheists. And all they know about is they know the Bible. I mean, maybe they know the Bible very well in terms of the information that is in the Bible, the stories that are in the Bible, the prophecies that are in the Bible. But they have certainly not experienced the love of God. They have not experienced the fulfillment of anything that is written in the Scripture. And when they read the scripture, they study it as a historical document and not as the living word of God. Okay, When someone is um, experiences God, experiences the Holy Spirit, yes, it, it of course drives with and makes sense with everything that is written in the scripture. But it is beyond just simply reading about God. It is beyond simply understanding information and facts about God. Like I always use this example of like, let's say, you know, you, you, you read uh, a biography of Abraham Lincoln and you know all these information and facts about Abraham Lincoln and you, you, you know like every day of his life, where did he go and what did he do and what did he say? But that doesn't mean that you know him as a person. It doesn't mean that you understand him. It doesn't mean that you would have the equivalent experience as though you were, you know, living with him, seeing him day in and day out and knowing him as a man, right? And the same is true with God. Actually, one of the rebukes that Christ said in John chapter 5 um, to the people is he said, you, you, know, you search for me in Scripture, right? Because you believe that these are the words of eternal life in Scripture, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. It is a very kind of powerful and telling rebuke. He's saying, you search for me in order to find me in the Scripture because these are indeed the words of eternal life but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Meaning, we read about God, we understand what is required, what is necessary, what God is saying, but then we don't take the next step, which is actually to try, which is actually to live according to those things that we have learned about him. And that's why oftentimes, and maybe specifically in the Orthodox Church, because our church has so much, has so rich with knowledge and information and things, is that sometimes we might find ourselves preoccupied with gaining more knowledge with gaining more understanding, with learning more history, with learning more rights, with learning more things. But maybe we have to ask ourselves, am I pursuing all of this for the right intention and with the right motive and with the right understanding? You know, you can ask the question like, if I never learned anything new, if, if all I had a knowledge about God and the church was only what I had today, if I actually lived it, if I actually lived according to what I know, then very likely we would be saints, Right? without ever having gained any more knowledge than we have, you know? So we, we have to be careful, you know, what is it? What is the spiritual struggle? What is the spiritual life? The spiritual life is not just learning more information about God. The spiritual life is living according to what we know about God, living according to what we have been taught. And here, certainly, St. Paul's example for us, he says, it is not by speech and preaching with persuasive words of human wisdom. It is not that St. Paul is trying to make himself to be 
like one of these famous preachers or very eloquent teachers. Maybe we can see the same thing in our life. Like we have certain people, certain Christians, for instance, that are very well known because they can craft a beautiful sermon. They can say something that is, um, you know, very eloquent, you know, and they're megachurches, right, that have people who are very well known and even celebrities who can do such a thing and they write books and all this stuff, right? Compare that to the apostles, right? The apostles, they were uneducated. The apostles didn't have, you know, didn't learn rhetoric and didn't learn about, you know, all these different languages, didn't learn all, this, all, all these things that maybe other people more advanced than them knew. And that's actually one of the confusing things that the Pharisees didn't understand about the apostles. They said, how is it that these people can do this? How is it these they can go and preach and do all this? Thing? And it's not coming from their education. It is coming from the power of the Holy Spirit in them, right? So those who um, actually have a relationship with God, they can stand up against the most educated. They can stand up against those who are the most versed in the worldly wisdom because the wisdom of God puts to shame any wisdom of the world, right? So our focus should not just be an academic knowledge. Of course, it is important to understand our, our church and understand the history and the rights and the theology. And I'm not trying to say it's not. But that is like the springboard. That is like the stepping stone, which then would lead you into a deeper, deeper spiritual life, as opposed to just kind of only focusing on the first and not exploring the second or going into the second. Because our salvation is not by information. You know, salvation is not by knowledge, right? Salvation is through relationship. Salvation is through accepting the sacrifice of Christ. Salvation requires the, 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 the constant um, uh, realization of the presence of God with us all the time, right? Because this is the only way we can live according to how God taught us to live, right? I cannot live according to God's commandments if I believe that God is not present, right? If God is not present all the time with me. So here, St. Paul, he is talking about a demonstration of power, this demonstration of power is what brought the people to believe. It was not simply the words of St. Paul. And of course, when we speak about evangelism, the same is true for us. We cannot expect that it is by mere words that we are going to convince or convert anyone to the faith. Because words are cheap, and every person of every faith and every religion and every philosophy and every dogma in the world has a lot of words to say, right? And we are pummeled with words. We are, we are inundated with words. There's words everywhere, all the time, by everyone. How would I choose to listen to a certain person versus not another? It is according to the effectiveness of their preaching. Not, not, the, effect, not the effectiveness of the preaching itself, but the effectiveness of like, the efficacy of that teaching. Like, is what you're teaching actually true? Does it actually, like, like, does it actually um, ap apply to me the way that you say that it does? And if I see that in the life of the teacher, the one who is teaching me, that they live according to these principles, and I see how that it is effective for them, and I see the power that is in it, then I also can believe it, right? Beyond just simply sounding nice and sounding eloquent. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. This is a very like, powerful statement, right? Maybe difficult to even understand. Let's read it again. For though he, Christ, was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. 
First and foremost, as believers, we are called to emulate and to imitate our master. It's so that whatever life he lived, whatever manner of philosophy he lived by, whatever way he lived is the way that we should expect to live or we should seek to live, right? So he was crucified in weakness. Of course, by weakness here, it doesn't mean the actual weakness. It means his submission to the weak, right? He, 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 the Lord submitted himself to those who are weaker than him. One of my favorite hymns in the church is The Only Begotten, or Omonogenis, that we say in the sixth hour on Good Friday, when it says what? That the Lord showed power, right? He showed, he showed what is greater than power. He showed through what appeared to us to be weakness. The Lord manifested what is greater than power because he chose submission. He chose to submit himself and to suffer at the hands of his creation. And this was the greatest power that he showed. It was the power of his love. It was not the power simply of his divinity. It wasn't simply the power of, you know, his, his exalted, glorious power and glorious state, as you would imagine in any religion, and certainly in the pagan religions of the people at the time of Christ, who were the powerful gods, you know, the Greek gods, the the, the ones who could demonstrate power over others, the gods who could defeat the other gods, the ones with the greatest, you know, resources, the ones with the most authority, the most power, those were the ones that were seen as being the true gods because they were the ones that exercised power and authority over everybody else. But certainly this man who claimed to be God, who was put on a cross and nailed to it and died, who would look to him and say that this is God, right? He did not have the characteristics of God in the minds of the people. He didn't have the characteristics of power. So what the hymn is saying to us is that it is through this act of submission to those who are weak that God demonstrated a power that is greater than the power of all the other gods, right? Because any being who has infinite power can exercise that power at will, right? And doesn't demonstrate any character, doesn't demonstrate like any, any love, any kindness, any mercy. All he demonstrates is to use what is naturally his own, which is the power that he has by his nature, right? The same is true of us. If I'm in a position of power over somebody else, how easy is it for me to make that person feel low? Or when they fail or they make a mistake or they, they hurt, hurt me in some way, how easy is it for me to punish them in one way or the other for the, the, the mistake that they made? But how, how different is it and how much more powerful is it for me to forgive? How much more powerful is it for me to show mercy, right? Because I have within my power to do harm. I have within my power to retaliate, to take revenge. And yet I choose not to use this power, which is in it itself power, which is in it itself the manifestation of something that is greater than power. And that is what here St. Paul is saying. And that's what the hymn Only Begotten is saying. Is saying that, that God demonstrated what is greater than power, but in our limited human perception, it looked to us like weakness. It looked to us like failure, right? For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. So if you see our confusion, you know, how, how, how poorly we as humanity are able to discern truth, that while we are looking at something which is the greatest act that of love that has ever happened, and yet with our limited senses we look at it and we say this man is a weak man. This man is only a man, a man who failed, a man whose ministry has ended, 
a man who although he had a small following in his life and yet now he is completely abandoned and that his teaching will come of to come to nothing that this is what the people at the time would look to see and actually even the apostles themselves you know you read about in the scripture about how the apostles were fishing and then the lord calls them to be apostles and you never read about them fishing again because the lord said i will make you fishers of men and then after the death of the lord then you see them fishing again it's like our 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 whole mission our whole purpose that we thought that we had during the time when the lord was alive has now been confused it's like we are going back to our previous job we're going back to our previous vocation again we don't realize that this act that the lord did was such an act of power of revolution of changing the world and changing each of us so this is the lord the lord's doing the lord's mission to incarnate to be crucified and yet resurrect in power and to show us truly his power for we also are weak in him but we shall live with him by the power of god so just as the lord is because we say he is the first fruit just as the lord is so we are also so if we want to ask ourselves as believers what type of life should i expect right it says this is the life that he led this is the life we will lead this is the life we should expect that just as he was crucified in weakness we are also weak in him right it appears to the world as weakness the way that the christianity teaches us the way that we are taught to live appears to the world as weakness you know instead of getting into a fight and showing how powerful i am i stand by and i'm meek and i forgive and i allow others maybe even to abuse me you know and the lord was teaching the people He said if somebody asks you to walk with him 1 mile you walk with him 2 miles. You know? If somebody takes your cloak you give him also your tunic. You know? If if so, if somebody if someone is like mistreating you don't retaliate but actually give him even more than what he asks. This looks like like weakness. This is like like this is a person who is a coward. Like you're afraid to fight, you're afraid to retaliate, you're afraid to take what is yours by your strength. Right? This looks like weakness. This is not the characteristics of powerful people in the world, right? That we would see those who are powerful who are conquering, right? The Lord conquered, but he conquered through submission. He conquered through obedience. He conquered through a different way than we would imagine a conqueror to conquer, right? And this is why the scripture says that in the first time that he came, he came as a lamb, right? He came as a lamb who allowed himself to be sacrificed that was his act of love and his act of power the second time the lord comes he will come as a lion and in, as a lion he will not demonstrate that he will demonstrate judgment he will demonstrate his power clearly for all to see because the time of mercy has ended the time of patience has ended but here in this we see that he is weak and we also live his same humility his same submission is so the same expectation of suffering that the lord endured we also are in expectation to endure when the world world looks at us and condemns our beliefs condemns our faith condemns everything that we are right um and yet we stay firm and we stand for what our belief is and we are willing to accept rejection by the world in whatever form it might come because this is my faith this is my belief and just as the lord was rejected i am willing to accept rejection for the sake of the lord but also right just as the lord lives by the power of god we also live with him by the power of god 
we also are, 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 are truly have the power of God in us. We truly have the power to live according to how he's called us to live. And ultimately, we will be glorified the way that the Lord Christ was glorified. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, St. Paul had said, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. This message of the crucifixion of Christ, right? For the Jews, they couldn't comprehend it because they were looking for a King David figure who would be their Messiah to come and to conquer the enemies. And to the Greeks who believed in these pagan gods who were powerful, how could you believe in this God who was not powerful? This is the stumbling block. This is, this is, this is why the, the creator of the universe, he thinks and he acts differently than you or me, differently than we would act, differently, which is why when people are speaking about the belief in God and do we believe in God and who are, what are the characteristics of this God, right? You don't look at someone, you don't, you're not searching for a God who has the characteristics of a human being. You're looking for a God who acts like this. If you are trying to find out if the God of Christianity is true, you look for someone who did this, not someone who is um, the, the conqueror, the way that we imagine an all-powerful God to be. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. He's calling us to examine. What is the person who does not examine? What, what will come of the person who does not examine? They will be deceived. The person who does not examine himself will be deceived because he doesn't want to see himself. He doesn't see himself because it is so easy for us to be deceived and to deceive ourselves, right? He's saying, test yourself. Do we look at ourselves and we see what is lacking? I compare myself to the standard of God and I see where do I line up with the standard? And any of us who would line ourselves up and, and compare ourselves to the standard of God must find they are severely lacking. We must all find that we are severely lacking. This is why all of our prayers are speaking about asking for God's mercy. Lord, have mercy. You know, we keep saying, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Why? Because we have examined ourselves and we find ourselves lacking. And so we reach out for salvation. We reach out for mercy, the mercy of God, the salvation of God. But this is the work of a believer. This is what a believer does. A person who does not examine themselves is fooling themselves. A person who is not examining themselves does not know God, does not know themselves, does not understand their purpose in life, does not understand what they should be doing, how they should be living, and they are assuming that everything is fine, right? Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? Meaning, like, if, if we are choosing to live like the rest of the world lives, and that we are content with this, right? Then maybe we are disqualified. Maybe, maybe you know, saying, if Jesus Christ is in us, then how is it that we could live this way? How is it that we could live without examination? How is it that we could live like everyone else lives? You know, it goes back to the idea of rejection. We are rejected for a reason, you know? And sometimes rejection is the mark of success. That if I truly am living like the Lord, if I truly am living like the apostles, if I truly am living like the early Christians who are faithful to God, then I would expect rejection. And if I have no rejection, if I have no suffering, if I have no persecution, if nobody looks at me and says, I'm uncomfortable with the way that you're living, then I have to ask myself, am I really living the way I should live? 
Because if no one is uncomfortable with the way that I am living, then very likely it means I'm living like the world lives, right? And if I'm doing that, I'm not testing myself. I'm not examining myself. I do not know myself, right? It is, it is a misconception among believers that we should look at ourselves and find that everything is fine. You know, some people who avoid confession, they say that they don't confess because they haven't done anything wrong. And they think about the big sins. You know, I haven't killed anyone. I haven't raped anyone. I haven't robbed a bank. You know, I haven't, I haven't done anything so horrible to where I even need to come and confess. But when the Lord speaks about sin and he speaks about his standard of righteousness, he says not only does a person who actually physically commits adultery consider committing adultery, but even the one who has adulterous thoughts. And the one who commits murder is not just the one who physically goes and kills someone, but the one who commits murder in his mind through hatred. And if we look at the true standard that God has placed for us as believers, who of us can stand against this standard and say, I have kept the law? You know, I have done according to what Christ says, and I am, I am blameless before him, right? This is not even, the, our, this is not even like, like our goal. <laughs> like our goal should be to realize our weakness, to, to, to ask the Lord for mercy, and in whatever way he wants to edify us, to build us, to transform us, to convert us, to be righteous, this is his, this is his prerogative, what he chooses to do. I go to the Lord and I ask him to forgive me. I ask him to strengthen me. I ask him to change me. And whatever change happens to come upon me, whatever work of the Holy Spirit to work in me, this is up to God. How he wants to change me, how he wants to convert me, how and how long this process takes, this is all up to him. I can't control that process. All I can control is I examine myself to see whether I'm in the faith. I test myself. And whatever I find is lacking, I go and I ask for, for forgiveness from God. And he has promised that he is faithful to forgive. And he is faithful to have mercy. And he will not remember our sins anymore. So there is nothing frightful about this. What is frightful is not doing this. What is frightful is avoiding my sins is avoiding examining, is avoiding looking at myself. That is frightful because we go about our lives believing that everything is fine when in reality it is the furthest from fine, right? The more that we know ourselves and the more that we find what is lacking in us, while on the one hand it makes us sad that we are falling short of the standard of God, but at the same time it gives us a kind of a comfort because the more I know myself, the more I judge myself, the more God will not judge me. The more I expose my sin, the more God will not expose me, right? So, so, so this, is, this is a source of comfort for believers, right? The sacrament of confession, this is a source of comfort. It should not be a source. It shouldn't be something we run away from. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified, right? The apostles, whom St. Paul here is saying about we, the servants of God, the ones who have been called by God to serve the Corinthians and to serve the people. He's saying, I trust that you know that we are not disqualified. I trust that you know that we are living for God and that we are ministering to you the truth that comes from God, unlike the false teachers who are coming who are disqualified, the false teachers who are teaching a gospel different than the gospel that we preach to you. The, the, a, a gospel different than the gospel you accepted when you became a believer, right? We are teaching the same, whereas they are teaching what is contrary. They are the ones that are disqualified, and they're leading you astray. Yes.
you're uh, what? When, when you look at St. Paul, well, or rather, when you look at the uh, other apostles, we, we refer to most of them as bishops, or all of them, I think. Um, but St. Paul, what, what ministry does, does he hold? Like, especially, how, how what, what comparable ministry is there today that he, he did then, would you say? You mean what? Uh, you mean other than being? You mean other than being an apostle? Like what specifically? What work did he do? Yeah, like you know, we, do we call him a bishop? I, I, I don't think anyone does. Yeah, an apostle is a bishop. Okay. But okay. A, even a higher rank, you could say, than the bishop. Okay. But but the 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 modern day bishops are like the descendants of the apostles through the laying of hands. Okay. So just as the apostles had the authority to lead the church in the first century. So now the bishops have the authority to lead the church today. Just like the apostles would meet together in council to decide things for the church, like in Acts chapter 15, where the apostles met together to discuss what are the requirements for um, convert, Gentile converts to Christianity in terms of do they need to be circumcised? How should they, you know, are, is it permitted for them to eat meat sacrificed to idols and other stuff like that? Um, just as they met in council, so also we have bishop councils. They meet in councils and they decide, you know, these kind of uh, different issues of the faith today. So the bishops have the exact same role that the apostles had at the time. Yeah. Uh, verse 7. Okay. Now I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. He here, he is not seeking their approval. Okay, but their salvation, right, before God who is the judge. He is not seeking any credit. He is not seeking any approval. He is not seeking that they would, you know, uh, that he would have a good reputation in front of them. He is seeking only that they should do was it what is honorable, okay? So regardless of how they see him, regardless of whether they consider him to be an apostle or not, regardless of whether they honor him or not, regardless of whether they respect him or not, in the end, all St. Paul cares about is that they would live righteously. And actually, there is uh, not in 2 Corinthians, I don't remember where it is, but there was um, another t place where actually where St. Paul was in prison. And he heard about that these false teachers were going around the church and he was, they were preaching. And he said, essentially, whether these false teachers are teaching by good motives or bad motives, all I care is that the word of God is preached and the people believe, right? He is not looking for approval for himself or attention to himself or to win points for himself. His only care is that the people live honorably, that the people live righteously. And this is true for us as a church, as service. You know, sometimes when we are in a specific service, we focus so much on how much I am doing. Like, what is my role? How much I am achieving? How my reputation is being affected? How, you know, how people look to me? How many people prefer me versus the other person? You know, we, and we compare, right? Whereas here, St. Paul was not trying to do any comparison. He didn't care about anything. You know, all he cared about is that the people were saved. That's what he cared about. Even if they hated him. E even if they rejected him, even if they followed whatever it is that they followed, but that the people would be saved and the people would do what is righteous and honorable. That was his focus. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. It is the role of the teacher, the teacher who has received his calling from God to teach the truth of God. You know, 
we, we were speaking actually on Tuesday at the St. Mark Bible study about um, when St. Peter was telling St. Timothy that the church is the pillar and the ground of truth, that the truth is the foundation of the church, and that it is the role of anyone who does any service in the church to teach the, the truth of, of God, not the truth of the world, not my own personal opinions about the truth, but to teach what is the truth that God has um, passed to us, has revealed to us, right? And so here St. Paul is saying what? It doesn't matter whether I am rejected or not. If somebody rejects me because I'm saying the truth, if somebody rejects me because you don't like the message, right? That is not my concern. It is not my interest, whether you like the message or you don't like the message. And, and certainly we are in a time now, in 2021, where this could not be more true, right? That anything we do in the world, you know, our options are stay quiet, don't call out anything happening in the world as being nonsense, as being um, not even against God, but ag against reason, right? Um, or we can pretend like we're with them because we want to gain favor, right? Because we're afraid of persecution, because we're afraid of rejection. Um, or we can stand up and we say, no, this isn't what I believe. We, we do not accept this. You know, social media is now a place for for hanging people, for destroying people, for um, for trying to obliterate people, right? And the moment that somebody does or says something publicly that is against the doctrine of the world, they begin to hang them on social media and call them out and call them all kinds of names and try to destroy their life, not just calling names, destroy their life in whatever way they can. And so there is a lot of intimidation now. There's a lot of intimidation. You know, sometimes even while I'm up here talking, I'm thinking to myself, you know, these, these Bible studies, they go on YouTube. And there are, I, I mentioned it to you several weeks ago, like there was an Orthodox priest who was banned on Facebook simply for teaching the truth. And he wasn't even talking about controversial things. So we are in a place where our faith, where, 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 we, are, where we are directly not allowed to, to, to believe what we believe. And even though we say that we have freedom of religion, yes, you have freedom of religion, but while at the same time you have freedom of religion, we will try to destroy you for believing certain things. So we have to ask ourselves a question, is what is it that I really believe and what am I willing to do to express that belief? What does it mean for me to believe? Is belief simply uh, like an internal thing in my brain, like in my mind? Like, you know, I believe something. Okay, I'm going to keep it up here, and I'm not going to reveal it to anybody. I would argue that that's not really the fullness of faith. Because anything else that we believe in the world, we express. Like, part of believing is expressing. You can't really believe something and hide it. You know? If you look at the martyrs in the Coptic church, you know, throughout history, like in the, in the early church in times of martyrdom, like in the third, fourth centuries and so on, um, they not only didn't hide what they believed, they went of their own strength to the governor and told him, we are Christians, this is what we believe, and we will not raise incense to the idols. And they were killed. And that was actually what kept the church strong for so long and what actually strengthened the faith because the people were willing to die for it. Like, it be, like even the pagans would be converted to Christianity because of that. And some of the people who were the greatest persecutors of the cops became cops, became Christians because of that. 
So we find ourselves also now in a place where we have a lot to lose and we have to ask ourselves, am I willing to lose? You know, St. Paul, he says, what I count all things as rubbish, rubbish, trash. You know, like I don't care about what I lose. I don't care about my reputation. All I care about is the truth, for we can do nothing against the truth. And pretending as though this is not our faith is actually doing something against the truth. Pretending as though, like, I'm just going to sit on the sidelines over here and I'm not going to express this is my belief. To a large extent, this is being complicit. Like, the, the world needs the voice of reason. The world needs the voice of truth. Not just that we know the truth in ourselves. Not just that we are comfortable because I know the truth. No, because we know the truth, we have to go and express the truth. This is why when Christ says, I am the light of the world, and then he says about us, we are the light of the world. So who is it? Is it him or us? It is both. Because the light that we shine is his light. It is the truth that we receive from him is the truth that we declare to the world. So you can't have 50% of the equation. You can't say we receive the truth from God and we just keep a lid on it. And we don't do anything with it. We, we teach it maybe to our Sunday school kids and we, we, we whisper it to people over here and whisper it to people over here, but then we do nothing else with it. In order for us to fulfill the mission of Christianity is to declare the truth as it is to the world. And that can be done in various ways. You know, certainly it can be done in conversations. You know, I'm not saying we have billboards up on the street, but I am saying that when given the opportunity, we don't shy away from saying this is what I believe, and I say it with boldness. I say it with boldness because this is what I believe. I don't say it with shyness. I don't say it with, with, uh, with almost like in an apologetic tone. You know, I don't want to offend you, but no, you offend me. You know, why is it that we are always the ones who are afraid of offending people? I am offended. I am offended about just before I came here, there was a news article that I sent to the servants. It was like a cereal box of like frosted flakes or something. You know, Tony the Tiger. But it was like a rainbow colored frosted flakes that it was promoting um, people using different gender pronouns. In Frosted Flakes, you know, I used to eat that cereal. <laughs> so, like, it is so out there in your face. So we, we have to, we, we, we can't just pretend. And, and you know what? A lot of people are afraid to speak. But there are a lot more people than we imagine that are actually against us. It's just they're afraid to speak. It reminds me of um, Elijah the prophet. During a time where all the prophets of God were being persecuted, and Elijah the prophet, he thought that he was the last person who did not bow down to Baal. He was, the la he was the only faithful one left. And God told him, no, there's thousands more. Maybe you don't know about them. You know, maybe they're afraid to speak. Maybe, they, maybe they're hiding. You know? In, if we have any hope at all of bringing sanity to the world, of bringing truth to the world, then we can't just be silent and be just like, well, at least in my church, we get to teach the right thing. There will eventually be a day where we cannot there will eventually be a day where we will be banned. And other countries have done so. You might not remember this, but maybe the previous mayor, I, I don't know if it was the previous mayor or the mayor before that of Houston, um, I think it was related to teachings about homosexuality. She asked, she actually asked all of the pastors in Houston to send her their sermons so that she could see what they were teaching in their churches. Can you imagine? Like, this, this is not theoretical. This is not like something that might happen to somebody somewhere. This is already happening. So we cannot be just content 
was saying, you know what, at least we have a safe space where we can talk about what we believe in a corner. Because that corner is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and eventually will disappear. We have to make our voices known. And whatever happens, happens. Uh, we can't control that. For we do nothing against the truth but for the truth. Everything we do is for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. And this also we pray that you may be made complete. The apostles, okay, are, are made to look weak because they are enduring all kinds of persecution. Like the, the apostles are, are accepting this persecution, are accepting the suffering, accepting all the hardships that they're accepting. Like someone like St. Paul, who he speaks about all these weaknesses and all these problems that he has in his ministry. For what? For the sake of those people that he serves, for them to be strong, for them to be faithful, for them to be, have the fullness of faith, to understand the will of God for them and to have salvation. Right? And so he's offering them. We are willingly enduring all of this so that you would be made complete, so that Christ would be formed in you, so that you would have the fullness of faith and be mature in your faith. Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for uh, destruction. Seeing I'm, I'm telling you this by writing because when I come to you, I don't want to be put in a position where I have to harshly rebuke you. You know, I don't want to. He, do, he, he is a father. He is not there to attack them. He's not there. He doesn't want to rebuke them. He's saying this as a warning to them so that they would change. Also, St. John Chrysostom, he says, the Apostle Paul would rather show his authority in his words and not in his actions. He left it to the Corinthians to deduce that in case they do not manage to correct themselves, he would certainly come and do it for them. You know, like, like, take heed of this and correct yourself because if I come and correct you, you're not going to like it. You're not going to, it's much better when it comes from you rather than when it is something imposed upon you. Finally, brethren, farewell. This is the, the conclusion of the whole epistle. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you all. Will be with you. The idea of become complete, I feel like this is a very unique thing to say, you know? Have you ever went to anyone and you said to them, become complete? Like, it, it, it has like, like it, it gives you like an insight into the mind of St. Paul of what he's actually desiring. What does he really want? He wants them to be complete. He wants them to have everything that they need for their life, for their salvation. And this is what he struggles to achieve. This is what he wants to teach them. And he is teaching them this. I mean, the Corinthians, they were pagans, right? They were Greek. And so all the Greeks, obviously, I mean, who, who, who became Christians, they used to be pagans. He is trying to win them to something very different and very new than what they had known in their life. You know, we, even as Orthodox, we take for granted that Christianity is well known. You know, like Christianity is known. You know, even if people don't understand all the stories, all the details, all the true essence and meanings, but the concept of Christianity is understood to a large extent in most of the world, okay? But here at the time, it was not so, you know? Even at this time, people thought that Christians were talking about cannibalism when we talked about eating the body and blood of Christ. Like, that, that, that's the misconceptions that people had at the time. So St. Paul's uh, mission was a very difficult one. He had to take the, those who were in the mindset, the pagan mindset, and convert them to the Christian mindset, right? To the Christian understanding. And not just the Christian beliefs, but the Christian lifestyle. 
which is even more difficult than the beliefs. The beliefs is you read a bunch of stuff and you take a test on it and I got an A. But to live it is harder than just to believe it, right? So when he's speaking about being complete, in some sense he's saying, I want you to live out the doctrine that I am teaching you. And in, in living out this doctrine, you will become complete. Because it is only through God, who is the source of life, not just the physical life, but the emotional life, the psychological life, the emotion, like e every type of life, every type of like what the way the human beings were intended to be, he is the answer. He is the one who fills us. So to be complete means to, to have God in everything, right? I want you to have God in everything. You know, even in the church, we, you know, oftentimes we, we talk about how like the church in America, how it's different than the church in Egypt in the sense that in Egypt, people have like Coptic people the church is like the center of their life for many, many people, right? Everything they do is in the church. They go to church four or five times a week. Um, what they care about the most is attending spiritual meetings, is attending liturgies, is doing this, you know, and, and the church is just naturally a core part of their existence. And God is a core part of their existence. Whereas sometimes it feels like here in the West, we have to lure people to come to church. We have to give them you know, candies to come to church. Like, come and we'll give you this and this. You know, look. And it's a completely backwards concept. Because if I truly believe that the church is life-giving, and I want to have life, and I want to be complete, and, and, and God offers me the answer to every problem, and, and to give me purpose and understanding and eternal, eternal life, then I will come. I will come for that. I won't come for the candy. I won't come for anything else, right? So he wants, the, he wants these Greek people to, to reach that. He wants them to understand that. He wants them to, to reach the fullness of dependence on God so that God would fulfill all of their needs um, at the right, in the right way. Um, he also speaks about being of one mind, meaning, again, one of the problems the Corinthians had is they had a lot of conflicts. You know, there was a lot of divisions in the church. And you can't, be, you can't take communion, the sacrament communion, when you are not in communion with one another. You know, we, we, can't, we can't all be worshiping God together, looking to the east, praying, taking of communion, when in our minds we are at enmity and angry with and hating and jealous of one another and in competition with, right? These are the things that are in the world, right? These are, the, th these are the, the attitudes and the temptations that are in the world that we, like, bring with us into the church, which should not be. The church is supposed to be the bride of Christ. It's supposed to be the, the place where those who are enlightened and edified live and come and commune, right? Of course, yes, we are sinners. But there's a difference between someone who is struggling with a sin and someone who's just accepted a certain lifestyle. Meaning you could have a person who's, say, struggling with hatred toward a specific person. Let's say a person did something that, I, that really hurt me a lot, and I'm struggling with hatred, and I'm trying to overcome it, and I'm confessing about it, and I'm trying to work o over it, and I'm trying to serve this person to overcome my hatred for them, and I'm praying for them to overcome my hatred for them. That is an example of a person who is struggling but succeeding. Compare that to a person who... I'm justified. 
You know, I feel justified to hate them because look at what they did to me, right? And, 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 uh, and as long as we feel justified in our sin, whether it be sin like relational things like that or sexual or, or, or sins of the mind or whatever type of sin, once we become justified, feeling justified of sin, that is when we become separated from God. That is when the body of Christ becomes corrupted, right? Because we can no longer be at peace with one another. We can no longer be of one mind anymore. Each of us is attacking, attacking, attacking. Um, living in peace, do not let the world or the false teachers deprive you of peace. Do not let the world deprive us of peace. The world is filled with all kinds of nastiness. But as believers, we should believe that the Lord allows us to live above the world. Above the world. That the world, even though, yes, we will have suffering in the world, but that suffering does not have to enter into us in the sense that we know that the Lord has conquered the world. So whatever pain or suffering or problem I have, yes, it bothers me, and yes, it's painful, and yes, in some cases, it can even be devastating, depending on what it is. But at the same time, it doesn't take away my hope and make me fall into despair because I believe that in the end, the Lord has conquered the world. I believe that in the end, the Lord is giving me what I will not find outside. And actually, it could be a reason to come closer, right? To tasting the peace of God more, relying on him more. And the God of love and peace will be with you, right? When we approach God, God rewards us with himself. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This is actually what we say in the, lit in the liturgy, right? right? During the prayer of reconciliation. And we say this in the prayer of reconciliation because it is before we partake of communion that we must be reconciled to one another and reconciled with God. And so as a sign of our reconciliation, of our peace with one another, we greet one another with a holy kiss. Because I cannot greet someone around me while at the same time hating them. I have to force myself to address this. This isn't something that I can conveniently put off. It is my duty as a believer, as a member of the body of Christ, to deal with the issues that I have with the people around me. And if I've tried to deal with it and it hasn't worked, at the very least to forgive. You know, at the, at the very least to forgive, at the very least not to be consumed with hatred. St. John Chrysostom, he speaks about the holy kiss. He says, what is the holy kiss? It is that in which there is no hypocrisy like that of Judas. A kiss is given to incite love and to plant in our souls the sound tendency toward one another. Returning after a long absence, we kiss one another as our souls hasten to reunite together. Yet there is something to be said in this concern. Being the temple of Christ, when we kiss one another, we are as though kissing the entrance and passageway to the temple. It's very nice. Saying that if each of us is the temple of God, then when we embrace one another, it is like we are, we are embracing God in that person. Because this is what we forget, is that we are not enemies. We are all made in the image of God. We are all one in God. And though we might have our weaknesses, and though maybe through my weaknesses I hurt others, but what is the real problem? The real problem is the devil. The real problem is the devil that is working in each of us to hurt one another, right? Kissing the entrance and the passageway to the temple that we embrace the God in each of us. 
all the saints greet you. And we mentioned this a, a previous time. Here, the saints, he's referring to the believers, specifically the believers in Macedonia, which is that region where the Corinth is. So uh, it, it could be like the Philippians, like other churches, right, are greeting, he's sending a greeting from them. Um, and also, you know, the word saint is analogous to the word believer in the early church. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. This is the uh, invocation of the Trinity. And this is what is said at the conclusion of any of the prayers that we have in the church. Like at the end of a liturgy, at the end of the Bible study, at the end of any spiritual meeting, the priest will say this um, conclusion prayer which reminds us of why we are here. You know, it reminds us that we are here in the name of the Trinity. We are here because of our belief in God. We are not here simply because...